Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar that originally aired February 13th, 2021. The webinar was facilitated and hosted by Manvinder Kaur. Thank you for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sick Research Institute. This webinar will begin with a 40-minute moderated discussion between our presenters, after which we will have 40 minutes of Q&A from the audience. So please drop your questions in the chat box and be sure to include your name and city. Now, I'd like to introduce you to today's panelists. Jocelyn Kaur is a double UVA grad in religious studies, focusing on South Asian religions through the lens of literature and poetry. She's currently working as a researcher with SICRI. She's passionate about projects that create comfortable spaces for community members of all ages and backgrounds to engage in dialogue and learn from one another. She hopes to eventually go back to school to pursue a PhD in either religious ethnography or history and fulfill her dream of teaching and learning from others. Prithpal Singh is a poet, podcaster, inclusion advocate, and a dad to two daughters. He is based in London, UK, and is a volunteer for Sarbat LGBT plus six and diversity role models, and a passionate traveler and linguist. In November 2020, Prithpal Singh was appointed as the deputy chair of the UK Defence Sikh Network. In his work with Sarbat, Prithpal focuses on the intersection of Sikh faith identity with sexual orientation and gender identities and increasing allyship across the wider Sikh community. Please welcome today's panelists. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and just so everyone knows, um, we are having a little bit of technical uh, difficulties with Brithball Singh, but he has dialed in, um, so it should be running smoothly, but I thought I would just let everyone know about that before we begin our conversation today. Um, so thank you, Jasleen and Brithball, for joining our conversation today. And for all of our attendees and future um, recording watchers. Um, yeah, uh, I'm the moderator today. Um, today's conversation was really inspired by our contemporary moment um, and the increased tensions felt both in India uh, and abroad in the diaspora. Originally, we had wanted to focus broadly on the concept of love in Sikhi, um, thinking about conceptions of human love and divine love, but we thought this would do justice to the role love perhaps has been playing in our day-to-day lives for the past couple of months, particularly, um, and the other moments in which also, I guess, conceptions of love are challenged. Um, So thinking about how we understand and engage with love presently has influenced this conversation deeply. Um, But we can't get into the heart of the conversation without some context and framing, um, particularly around what is the sick understanding of love, which I know is a vague and large question. Um, but I'll throw it to Jocelyn Gore to get us started with a little bit um, of conversation around that. Hi, Fatih, everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, so we did speak a little bit about this in the sexuality webinar um, months ago. <laughs> so I'll just touch briefly on like kind of the general conception of love that we drew from our research for that report, which is that love with a capital L, which we love to say because there's a difference between saying like, I love my car and like, I love my spouse. (laughs) Um, But that kind of love 
is is eternal it transcends the physical it tra it transcends time um and that love is the kind of love that changes our behaviors changes the way that we see the world changes the way that we interact with other people um and it involves an like an identification with ikonkar with the divine that that takes us into that transcendence um and i think i i would like to touch a little bit on um some guidance that we've gotten from like certain bonnies that actually we've worked on for the Guru Side project recently. So um, in Asakivar, we have the last four bodies talking about what it means to be a lover. Um, what does it mean to be a lover of the beloved? And the guidance that we have there is like, it's not love if you like love your beloved and then another day you're like loving something else, um, which is to say that like, true like eternal love with a capital l is one that is it is eternal and it is without duality um there's no like scorekeeping or sense of transaction which i think is really common for us in in all of our relationships that we tend to kind of um think think in a way that is like unfortunately more scorekeeping like i did this thing for you so you should do this thing for me um and we do that with like our relationship with Ikwankar too, right? Like <laughs> in Asakivar, there are statements about like, you can't accept com the command when it's only good. And then when it's bad, suddenly you, you're not like down with that anymore. You know, <laughs> like those are the, the things that are, um, that like, that, uh, understanding of what is good and bad too is rooted in a binary that love with a capital L kind of dissipates once you've really like inculcated that um and then i think like personally and and this is just because of like recent bodies that we've been working on we've been working on kuchaji suchaji um and bada maha and kuchaji suchaji and then the third shabad that i won't really talk about but they all come together um is gunvanti and they're all written from the perspective of um, like Guru Nanak Sahib identifying with the bride, um, which we understand to be all seekers, all human beings who are seeking connection with Ikungar. And so there is this like thing that pulls me back a lot to Kuchaji, especially when I'm thinking about what it means to be in a relationship that is like that intimate with Ikungar, which I think we're all like aspiring to. Um, and the intimacy of that relationship is not just because the voices of the bride speaking to her spouse, it's actually like in, in her vulnerability and in her, um, in her kind of like understanding that, yes, maybe I'm not graceful in this moment, but this is what I would like. I would like to feel close to you, even if it's just for a moment. And she focuses so much on grace. And obviously I'm saying she, but it's all of us. And I think like that understanding in both our relationships with human beings and in our relationships with Ikungar is so important that like there's always this grace that underlies any kind of loving relationship if you're really doing love with a capital L. Um, and that connection is really important. And when she shifts into calling herself Suchaji, which is the graceful bride, as we've translated it, um, where she feels connected, 
The only difference that's really happened, it's not that she's connected all the time. The only difference that's really happened is that she now understands the larger picture and she zoomed out and she said, okay, I don't, I don't always feel connected to you. And there are times when it's like super painful because I'm separated, but I know that even that separation is part of your grace and part of your command. And it does something important. And we talk about this all the time. Like when we get too comfortable, we like don't appreciate that connection as much. I feel like there's that metaphor of like, um, when a fish is in water too long, like the water doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that thing is always around you. That presence is always around you, but are you conscious of it? And when you don't feel it, do you know that it's there? And can you work towards understanding that on like an emotional level? Um, And finally with Baramaha, the whole body like takes us through this like journey of changing seasons. And the whole thing is this metaphor for are changing sort of senses of our relationship with Ikonkar. And something that we talked about a lot as a team in understanding that was like, uh, if we think of like Ikonkar's presence as the sun, um, the seasons will change. It'll be cloudy some days. It'll be raining some days. Maybe you can't see the sun, but you know that it's there and it's still like sustaining everything, even if you can't necessarily like feel it tangibly all the time. And I think like that has become really important in how I understand love with a capital L too, because even when things aren't sort of perfectly connected or the union isn't felt perfectly in the way that we want, um, that like vulnerability in saying, this is what I would like, and this is what I will work to. It doesn't happen all on its own. Like there are things that we have to do to pull that remembrance back into ourselves. And when we do that, that's when, even in moments of separation, that could have felt like death before, even in those moments, we are like feeling the grace of that relationship. Um, So yeah, that's like, I know that's a lot, (laughs) but I've been thinking a lot about the, the transcendent relationship between human seekers and Igongar, like just a lot recently. And I think that those Shavids do a really good job of showing us how, how to be vulnerable in that relationship and how to sit with feelings that maybe are bad in the way that we understand mm-hmm. them. Um, yeah. Thank you. I think that provided a great framework for us to like work within um, and like a great understanding of love, capital L love. Um, and lowercase l love as well um so to bring brick ball singh into this conversation i think what you had just lee had mentioned about grace i think ties in really well um with how do we um how are we in our day-to-day lives being loving people um, or what does that even mean how are we engaging with people in our everyday context through this like framework of what love is in Sikhi. Um, and Brick Balsing, I think you did a great job of elaborating on it in our previous conversations um, about what it means to be a loving person. Um, yeah, I would love if you could share that with our audience today. Thank you for having me on today. Um, so when you talk about um, being a loving person, one of the things that really resonates with me is around um, the influences that you have when you're growing up 
and, and in your life around learning about what love is. And obviously, the first loving relationships you tend, generally tend to have with a human tends to come from your parents and your family. Um, and one of the things that uh, has always stuck with me and my parents have always reiterated was that um, anyone you meet in your life always treat them like you would your family. So that is a strong message for love, which talks about you know treating people with love, pe- treating people with compassion, um, trying to um, make sure that you can empathise with other people um, and um, try and make, uh, bring the best out of the other people um, by the interactions that you have with them. Um, it's really important to understand that before you can love anybody else, you need to learn to love yourself. Um, and sometimes that becomes a, a, an ultimate challenge for people as well because we need to be able to accept ourselves for who we are um, with, with the flaws and all that we might have. Um, and be able to just love ourselves and be able to then share that love with other people. Um, so, um, and, and particularly when I look at it from the from the queer community perspective, that can in itself can become quite a challenge because it feels almost as though um, within any relationship we have from a very young age, it feels as though there's something that's blocking us from being ourselves and from accepting ourselves. And when you can't accept yourself, um, you find it difficult to love yourself, um, and then you find it very difficult to then share that love with other people. So when you're then trying to think about, well, you know, how do I reach that transcendent love that we're talking about here? Try and um, you know, it becomes even more uh, difficult because it feels almost as though we're not worthy as uh, seen by other people. But the more that um, I connect with Gavani, and the more other people I see connect with the key and Gavani. It's evident that we realise actually um, what's quite important is to be able to um, accept ourselves for who we are. And uh, an important aspect from my life experience has been um, a particular Shabbat, which always resonates with me. And it was um, from Gurumadashi, um, and it talks about Mantra Jot Purupe, Apanam Wotashan, Man Haraji Bera Nalhe, Gurumadir and Man. In my mind, you are the embodiment of the divine light. Recognize your own origin. In my mind, the dear Lord is with you. Through the Guru's teaching, enjoy his love. And this teaches me um, about self-acceptance. It teaches me about, actually, uh, we are the part of um, the one that um, has been created. Um, so we are worthy of that love and we are able to share that love with others. I hope that answers question. I think it does. I think it's really helpful um, to to understand how uh, conceptions of love within Sikhi are applied in our everyday practice um, and what those look like. And I think that was very helpful in illuminating that. Um, I know at the beginning I had mentioned um, being loving people in our contemporary moment um, and in moments within our personal lives and in moments of political unrest. I know that can be a challenging and daunting task. And I just lean, you spoke about, I think you uh, phrased it as pulling that remembrance back into ourselves of the grace. Um, I thought that was very helpful in understanding perhaps how we can, um, yep, exactly that, pull ourselves back into uh, remembering that grace. Um, so I'll just ask you within that, how can we, be loving people in moments that are difficult for us personally. Um, yeah, perhaps what does that look like for you? 
So, so I've talked about the uh, um, issue around self-acceptance. Um, that's really important. And certainly from my life experience, one of the challenges I've had um, growing up in, in the UK has been um, being a part of a minority group, being visibly from a face, with a face identity. Um, sometimes that's been met with hostility. Um, and as, when you're young, that can be quite a challenging um, aspect. Um, and it's not until you get older that you start understanding why good you have given up this, this identifiable features that are really important. It's all about actually showing that love because when we're talking about all the things that we do um, within the sick space and the sick way of living, it's all about sharing um, our humanity, being compassionate, um, having empathy, protecting other people. These are all actions of those um, that are um, sharing God's love and um, the one love that we all should share. And I'll throw the same question to you, Justine. Um, and I guess, yeah, thinking about how we can be loving people in times of political unrest and hatred. What does that look like for you? Uh, <laughs> it's a hard question. And I think it's one we're all struggling with in like our current world as it has been lit on fire continuously. But um, I think... Um, I think, okay, so the last body of Asak you are that kind of sums it all up. Um, there's this metaphor of the vessel that I think about a lot. Um, and it says that we're all, like all human beings have been gifted this vessel. And there's nothing wrong with the vessel. Um, there's nothing imperfect about the vessel. The things that make our sort of human bodies and beings um, imperfect are our behaviors and so the thing that's really important and really hard to like actually believe all the time <laughs> is that none of us are past the point of no return and like there if we're gonna say like love with a capital l is unconditional and rooted in grace then that grace has to be for everyone and like it's really hard for me um personally <laughs> to like look at certain people and believe, okay, that person is also worthy of grace because I also know that that person might be filled with like a lot of hate um, or yeah, like be actively harming people. And so it's like this thing that I don't know anybody who's like actually fully believed that in, in a way that is like emotional and not logical. Like I can reread that 40 so many times and be like, I know I have to believe this, but it's really difficult to put that into practice when there's active like harm being done. Um, but I also think a lot about like Professor Putin saying, who's like a Sikri fave, <laughs> and what he says about like what love is and what compassion is when it is that kind of transcendent love or that transcendent compassion. And he says that is, he, he talks about Nam and Simran, he talks about remembrance and identifying with Ekonkar and what that means. And he's like, it's not just like doing this mindless, oh, I remember you, I remember you. It's like, something that like literally changes you from the inside out and it enables you to believe that thing that I said before. Like it enables us to slowly believe that, yes, you might be full of hate, you might be doing harm to people, but also I have to understand that you are just as worthy of grace as I am. And that's like really difficult. But when you are constantly identifying with this thing that is bigger than all of us, 
this love that is all encompassing, um, it allows you to be loving in a way that is like rooted, yes, in forgiveness, but also in justice. Um, and that doesn't mean that we look at people who are doing harm and we say, it's hook them and my hands are tied and that's it. It means that when we see that happening, we take our love and we put it into action. And like we, we've seen that throughout history and that doesn't always look like nonviolence. And I want to make that really clear. Um, we, we like fight for the people who are being harmed. We stand up against oppressive systems. Professor Singh says that that kind of love is like that love rooted in justice can overthrow tyrants and like upend entire systems. And he says that like, when we, when we don't do that, when we just like exist in the world and we say everything is hook'em and we just like say our hands are tied, we do become like cold to each other and unfeeling. Um, and so the love that I think is really relevant to our current moment, which feels like it's going to be a lot more than a moment, um, is, is the kind of love that makes us like brave and makes us fight for each other in a way that is like real and material. And we've like, we've seen that. Um, but I think sometimes we lose our kind of, our like sense of that as time goes on. I think like we've seen it with the farmers protest or the farmers movement, I would say. Um, and this might seem like a silly example, but it like is one that really moved me. Um, we've seen people like get in front of police officers to like protect other people. We've also seen like police um, retaliate in ways that are like violent. And then we've seen the same people that they've been like attacking, serving them longer. Um, we've seen the same people that they've been attacking, like planting flowers over like the nails that they <laughs> put into the floor. Like maybe that seems like nothing to some people, but I think that that's like a very tangible example of what it means to like fight in a way that is rooted in that love and that bravery that comes from that. Um, and it's about like serving the oneness. So like when, when people are serving longer to police officers, like that might make a lot of us uneasy. <laughs> and I like, I definitely felt that way. Cause I was like, why would you do that? But I'm not an enlightened being, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, it's that kind of like, yeah, I'm going to serve everyone with the same love that I, that I serve the people that I, you know, that are not hateful with. Like, I'm going to serve those same people who are attacking me because I understand this larger picture of the vastness of what love is and the vastness of what Ikonkar is. Um, but I do want to make it like very clear that that doesn't mean that we don't do anything and that we don't fight. Um, yeah, I think like the farmers are a really good example. And I think about that a lot because I'm not there yet. Um, but yeah. I, yeah, I think that's, um, a really poignant point about like journeys and getting there. Um, yeah, I think uh, what really resonated with me was at the beginning when you were speaking about, um, I guess what we would understand as belief and then action around doing, uh, around NAM. Um, and I think in my understanding, uh, like the belief has to come first and then the action goes afterwards. But I think the action can cultivate the belief. Um, so that's, yeah, kind of what I got from your answer. Um, but I think, yeah, pulling 
or yeah, maybe moving us back to conceptions of self-love and understanding what role that plays um, in this whole conversation. I'll yeah, throw it back to Pritzbal Singh. I know we've spoken about, yeah, I guess love with a capital L, lowercase L, conceptions of romantic love, divine love. Um, but perhaps, as you mentioned, a more difficult and maybe less interrogated conception is that of self-love. Um, so Pritzbal Singh, perhaps, yeah, we could explore your journey with um, self-love and how you get pulled away from that and how we can, um, yeah, find our way back to it. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so essentially, when when thinking about self-love, one of the reflections I have is around authenticity. Uh, we need to be our authentic selves. Um, I, I think I referred to earlier, you know, we all have flaws and we all have strengths. We need to embrace them all. Um, again, one of the challenges we have in life is trying to um, um, face our vulnerabilities. Um, and only when I learned to start um, actually leaning into those vulnerabilities, embracing those vulnerabilities that I face in my life, was I able to then um, actually start getting a feel for who the authentic me is. So that helped me understand who I actually am. Um, and things which I considered were flaws because society um, imposed those con- that concept on, on, on my mindset around, well, you know, being from, a, from an LGBT background is a flaw. Um, it made me realize, actually, this is the way I spoke about you as creating me. Um, it's not flaw. Um, and actually, um, the reason I need to volunteer with organizations like Cyber um, LGBT Freaks is to support others to understand it's okay to be who you are because why you created us this way. Um, and only when we start moving into that vulnerable space will we have the, the best space really for growth as an individual. And as you grow as an individual, that helps you come to accept them. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, accept yourself for who you are and then um, take you onto that journey of self-love um, in terms of understanding, um, you know, the, the way that we're trying to connect with Igor in this world is through being the best that we can be and to, be, to do the, all the good that we can do in terms of, um, you know, the three main tenets that we all should be learning about at the fundamental of key. And as long as we can um, do the thing, the do the things that the religious has laid down for us as principles that we should live our life by, and just being, uh, you know, the example you provided as well around the those same farmers that were getting beaten by, by the authorities in India, serving longer and drinks and the very same police officers who, who were beating them um, to me. Um, was really admirable. I just saw that, but wow, it really you know, the concept of what this love means. And if you don't, yeah, mind me kind of um, building on that a little bit. Um, maybe you could share with us what, like, in your in practice, what this like self love looks like. Um, maybe even love that like others have extended to you that, yeah, sits with you. Um, sure. So it, again, it's, a, it's about trying to um, set the standard ourselves rather than looking at other people to set that standard for you. Um, so, for example, from the LGBTQ community, 
uh, one of the biggest challenges they face within Vicky at the moment is that um, they can't have a, an equal and unfairage. Um, and an unfairage of the union between two souls that it had before, before God in order to take this journey together to to get to that point of transcendence. transcendence. Um, but, you know, the way that the current hook on Mama is an edict for coming out of the Ekbar Club are telling us that actually we can't do that, so we feel as though we're less than. So, again, when we talked about how to fight for things, we need to be able to um, challenge these things because these are things that have been given to all of us to be able to um, partake in as ceremonies. And if you look at the Nanka, it's a prime example of um, a ceremony which um, embraces the love between uh, and the union between two people and their journey together towards Vaikuru. Um, yeah, and, and yet, um, as, a, as a queer speak, that's something that's not um, open to me. So it's about trying to actually uh, challenge, challenge these things in order to make sure that other people aren't oppressed by, by these um, these things. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, um, what is deemed open um, and acceptable for certain individuals and like the boundaries that are created around that um, and challenging those, um, and ch- yeah, challenging those, I think, um, is at the crux of that understanding um, and in that conception of love within a sick framework and within our, yeah, lived in like the living of that. I know in our conversation before this, just lean, um, you were speaking about um, self-love within Sikhi. Um, I'll let you take over, but it was around the conception of the term geo. Yeah. So this is, um, again, a thing that I have come back to a lot. So in, when we were working on Kujadji, um, every line ends with Geo. And we had a lot of discussion as a team on like what that really means. And we weren't able to really translate it um, like in a way that was technically correct because it's not necessarily, it's not in the vocative case. So it's not technically like an address to someone else. Um, but with the interpretation, we have a little bit more leeway to think about what that means. And it's not just like an aesthetic addition to the lines. It it does this thing where every line is like coded in like love and compassion, which is really important because the the way that some translations like work with kujaji, it can come across really harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, like kujaji is often like translated as like virtueless bride, um, which implies some kind of like inherent flaw. Um, and a lot of the translations just drop geo. Um, and the problem with that is there's a difference between saying like I can't get to you I'm like so far away with you away from you and I can't get to you I'm so far away from you like geo um which we understood to be even though there's no like English equivalent to be kind of like a way of being like dearest or dear one um in the interpretive because I want to stress that it's technically not perfectly it doesn't work um but I thought about that a lot because my initial understanding of that show was like, this is really harsh. Um, and how can, how can like I see myself in this light? How is that like self-love to be like, I'm ungraceful. And it's like, well, if you read the rest of the Shabbat, she's saying 
I'm, I'm not graceful. I don't know what I'm really doing. I don't know how to get to you. I don't know the way, but I want to. And I'm not even going to ask why I'm not connected. I'm not even going to ask that question. I'm not going to sit here and pity myself or wallow because I know that the love that we have is a love rooted in grace. And I know that I have access to that grace. And so I'm asking for it. Um, and to be able to like stand in, in a label that is, that is like understood generally in like the, the cultural context of when this was, um, uttered, like this label that is negative to be able to stand in that and say, yeah, I'm ungraceful. I am. But I know that you love me anyway, and I want to be close to you, even if it's only for a moment. Um, that is like so like revolutionary to me. And I think about it so much because we're all seeking and we're all supposed to be able to identify with the Kuchenji. Um, and so even when we're like working on other Shabbats, I come back to that all the time because I'm like, do I, am I understanding that like, even if I feel really far away in this moment from Ikongar, even if I don't feel a presence that I can ask for it and that's okay. I don't have to like check off a bunch of things on the like sikhi checklist in order to feel union. And like that show really reminds us of that. Um, and like a personal anecdote that I think is like, relevant here is that when we were working on that Shabbat, talking about like non-romantic love, right? Like love between friends. Um, I, I like went through like a painful, like friend breakup, you know, you're friends with people for a long time. And then it's like, this doesn't really work anymore. Something is not right. And I talked to somebody on our team and they said, okay, well, think about Kuchaji and think about Gio because they were like, okay, you know, I know that you're really hard on yourself always. A lot of us are. And I was sitting there thinking like, what did I do in this friendship that was like wrong or um, not enough? And I think like the conversation I had with that longtime friend was very much one that turned to scorekeeping and that like sucked. Uh, sorry to be blunt, but I was so in it and so in pain and so sad and so ready to blame myself. And um it was actually her in there saying who said, think about Gio and what does that mean? And he said, I know that we've said like technically it doesn't mean dearest or dear one, but the way that he likes to think about it in that context is like maybe it's not an external address. Maybe it's a way to speak to ourselves. And maybe it means like, I feel this horrible way, but I'm still a dear one. Like I still am worthy. And like, that's really important because there, there are always moments where we're unkind to ourselves and it can like spiral into something that is like really hard to stop. Um, and he was like, you can be sad in this moment and like feel bad about it, but remember you're a dear one, no matter what. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, I just think about it all the time because I am so, you know, so many of us are like, so, um, yeah, so hard on ourselves. And I'll take it again to one Shabbat. It was the first Shabbat blog I ever wrote where I like had to think about a Shabbat and like apply it to my life. And the line that I focused on was like, Sagar me boon, boon me sagar. So if the ocean is in the drop and the drop is in the ocean, then what does that mean? If I can't even be nice to the little drop that's in me, like if I, if I want to love Ikongar, but I can't even get to a point of like loving myself and being compassionate with myself, 
then how can I get to that? Like, how can I even love the ocean if I can't love the drop? Um, and it's like, it's not a, an issue of being like self-absorbed. And I think a lot of times we associate self-love with that. It's like, I'm not loving my smaller self because I think like my smaller self is great. I'm loving my smaller self because I understand that it is part of this self with a capital L S and that I have a responsibility to myself with a small S and to the other selves all around me to be kind and loving and compassionate and to offer grace to myself and the people around me, even when it's hard. And it means that when I don't like what I'm, how I'm behaving or how I'm feeling, let's say like I'm angry or I'm sad and I don't like that. It definitely doesn't mean that I sit there and I say, I'm supposed to be loving myself and being nice. And now I'm like being horrible. And then like spiraling into this weird, like layered guilt of like, oh, well, I didn't do it today. I didn't love myself today. It means that even in those moments when you don't love yourself, because it's a work in progress and we're all kind of like in this training ground, it means that like when you don't feel that way, you still are compassionate to yourself about feeling that way. So if you're angry or you're sad or you're not feeling like you can love yourself for, for any particular reason, Self-love also means letting yourself sit in that emotion and letting it, letting it do what it needs to do and fly away. And that's not to say if you're angry, like go pour it out all over everyone, you know, but understand that that's also a part of being human. And like your goal is not to erase anger from your like spectrum of feelings that you're able to have. It's how do you move through that? And how do you treat people with compassion anyway? How do you treat yourself with compassion anyway? And one other thing, I know I'm talking a lot, but <laughs> we're working on um, Solokmala Nova. And I originally thought Guru Tegh Bahadur's like, tone in this was kind of like, like harsh. And I think a lot of people understand it to be that way because it's like, listen, man, time is running out. A very casual way to say that. Time is running out. You need to remember. You need to praise. You need to sing praises and like inculcate that remembrance so that, you know, when the time comes, it's not too late. And I originally was like, wow, this is, you know, he he calls himself or calls us. Um, it is a self-address and also a general address, as as the gurus like to do. Um, but there is this like repetition of, oh mind, oh friend. But then it also says, oh, madman, oh, crazy person. And I was like, what is he <laughs> talking about? And what, the more that we worked with it, the more I understand that there's like a uh, an inherent gentleness to the way that he's addressing us and himself. It's an urging, yes, but it is a gentle um, sort of urging into remembrance and urging into singing praise. Um, and even when he says time is running out, which he says again and again, and even when he says you're being crazy because you're not seeing the whole picture, if you just zoomed out for a second and calmed down, you would understand that like nothing is yours and that's okay. You don't need to be afraid of losing it. And you definitely don't need to be afraid of like death and the time when it comes. Um, he also says like, there is always time to walk the path. There's always room for grace. So don't even like think about, okay, I'm coming to the end of my life, let's say, or I'm getting older and now I'm, it's becoming apparent to me that like time is happening. Um, that doesn't mean that like, it's too late for you to get on that path and start walking. And like, 
there was another Shabbat actually that my uncle asked me about. I don't remember what it, like what the original lines were, but the translation said something like, don't even look at the time, like get your stuff and start walking on the path. And he was like, I thought all these other Shabbats were saying time is running out and we have to think about our time. And it's like, yes. But if you come to that realization late and you want to be unkind to yourself for coming to that realization late, that's not the productive thing to do. Even if you're in with like one second in the buzzer, I don't know. I like, even if there's a second on the buzzer left, sports analogies, like there is time. Just start walking. Um, and I think like all of that is rooted in being compassionate and understanding that love with a capital L is about grace. And it means that when we love ourselves that way, we need to understand how to love others that way. And if our Sikhi, as we kind of do it externally in the world, in our conversations, in our disagreements, if that living sort of, if that behavior that we have as Sikhs, especially in Sikh spaces, because I've seen it a lot, is like not rooted in that love and compassion, then we need to re-examine. Like that's, it's really important for us to like take a step back and understand what our responsibility is to ourselves and to others um, and how much that loving ourselves and that loving other people is important to like the oneness. If we want to talk about like uplifting the oneness and striving towards something that is more loving all around us, then yeah, we have to take a step back even when we want to resort to like anger or close mindedness. Um, sorry, that was very long, but <laughs> I'm done. I appreciated it so much. And to reiterate what's been said in the chat, my mind has also been blown. Um, I really appreciated that. I think, particularly the drop in the ocean and the larger ocean, I think that's such a great analogy. And I definitely, I'll come back to this webinar for sure. And I'll definitely come back to that analogy as well. Um, and I know where you ended. It's um, around the the these concepts, but in lived practice. So, yeah, pulling, and I really did appreciate you bringing in your own personal experiences to understand how these concepts um, and our understandings can be applied and what they look like when they are applied, um, and coming back to them in moments where perhaps we need to be kind to ourselves. Um, yeah, that was very helpful, but um, and. In moving towards uh, what you had mentioned at the end around communities and how communities engage and interact with one another, um, I went towards thinking of conditional love. Um, so, Brit Blessing, I know we talked about this a little bit, but around conditional love, and I know there's a question in the Q and A, and we'll address that as well because it's a great question around boundaries. But in regards to conditional love, um, who gets to dictate? who is worthy of love. And this is love both in the romantic, the divine, and in the self-love. So who is who is dictating this? What does this love look like? Who is creating the conditions for the receiving of love? And how can we challenge that? Um, so I think I think all human love is conditional to a certain extent. Um, so when people sort of talk about this is unconditional love, I think Unconditional love can only flow from, um, you know, the connection with oneness. Um, and only when we achieve that, I think, do you get unconditional. But all human love has some levels of 
condition um, attached. So as a parent, I, even though I try not to um, have expectations of my children, we all do because I want my children to do the best that they can they can do. Um, sometimes they might want to do something different to what I expect them to do. Um, uh, you know, but I, and I have to remind myself all the time, actually, that, you know, this will be the right thing for them. It might not be the right thing for me. How can I support my children in making sure they're making the, the right decisions in their life? Um, so, so that so there is a conditionality there, isn't it? Even though we have to keep reminding ourselves, actually, you know, um, you know, we're all on different journeys. We're all on different paths. Let's um, just try and support one another, love one another, um, and hope that the journey that we're on is um, is fruitful and successful. Um, so, so yeah. So, I think the best thing to do in terms of um, supporting one another, uh, in terms of uh, trying to make love unconditional, is to drop the expectations we have of other people. Don't expect anything from anybody. Try and be the best that you can be. Try and give the best love that you can give. Um, and I know when people say, yeah, but what about horrible people? How can you be loving to horrible people? Well, I'm sorry, but Guruji's given me this identity as a Sikh. Uh, Guruji's given me lots of ways of being um, humble and being able to uh, recite um, Shabbat and meditate with Simran, um, serve uh, other people by sharing things I have. These are all parts of love that I can share with others. And one would hope that that would resonate with other people, and they would then share that love on with other people, and it will be a, a that ripple effect where it will encourage other people to be loving to one another as well. Yeah, I think so. I really, I'd like to, yeah, think more about um, like parental love and conditioning conditions around that. Um, yeah, if you could speak a little bit more to that, I think that's really important. Um, yeah, and how, yeah, how that, what that journey looks like, um, and how, yeah, you grapple with that when you're, um, when your children or even any, any loved one, um, when they're engaging in a behavior or they're doing something that perhaps, uh, doesn't align with your worldview, um, and how do you approach them in a way that's still loving? Um, what does that look like in practice? So in practice, it's making sure that I have those channels, communication open with them, so that they they are receptive to um, things that, um, that the reactions that I will have, the um, the advice that I will give them, so they're thinking about things wider than just the the view that they might help might hold. I mean, you know, we all hold a view from a particular lens, and one of the things I know on my journey in my life is that uh, views that I had when I was younger have changed, views over time. <laughs> have changed and that's been formed either through experience, through education, through learning. Um so we can't we can't say that just because we feel this way now, this isn't something that's gonna hold on forever. Um so so in terms of expectations, these are things that can change as well all, all through life. So I think it's about having open communication channels to make sure that you can um, you know, show compassion to people, um, listening to people. Uh, we've been given two ears and one mouth. So I think the, the listening is very powerful that so you can actually listen to people, under, try and understand people's perspective. Um, um, and then, and then try, uh, try, um, try and understand what, where they're coming from. If you can't come to a consensus, 
then you have to just accept that that's the journey and the path that the person is going to take and your child is going to take. Um, uh, and if I flip it back onto talking to my my parents about my sexual orientation, for example, uh, you know, that was quite a challenging conversation. Um, and I had to be open with my family and my, my parents about who I am. Um, and they found that really difficult because they felt as though they didn't know me. Uh, the reality was that I am still the same person that they loved. And my mother did turn around to me and say, look, I don't understand your perspective, but you're my son and I love you and I know you're a good person. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I want you to be happy. Um, so, you know, so that's from, from my point of view, from my relationship with my parents, that was really powerful for me as a message to say, you know, my, my mum doesn't understand my perspective, but she accepts me for who I am. Um, it also eases um, the ability to have a better relationship because I didn't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. And my mum can now love me for who I actually am rather than who she thinks I am. Mm-hmm. I think that can, yeah, that can be very powerful and it ha- clearly has been um, in your journey. Um, the acceptance that perhaps isn't accompanied with the understanding and like cultivating and getting to that understanding um yeah is very important in our in our relationships um but i'll throw the same question to you just um yeah who who gets to dictate who is worthy of love um and what does this love and what this love looks like um and then what does that look like in practice when we're challenging it yeah i think it's a good question. I I think I would just take it back to the last 40 of Asakiwa, that like, if we're going to say that everyone has room for grace and that the vessel is perfect, but the behaviors are imperfect. Um, and like looking at, I know we talked about like the, the one of the Shabbas that mentions Ganika um, and Ajamal, the elephant, like in the sexuality webinar, we talked about how even this person who was seen by society as like being somehow not worthy because she engaged in sex work, like was able to cross the ocean, the world ocean with Nam. Like, I think that the logic, like the logical understanding then that follows is that we don't get to dictate who's worthy of love. Um, and that for us to even um, like think that we can involves a kind of scorekeeping and judgment that like we are not allowed to make as human like we're all imperfect there's i mean (laughs) none of us can say like i have no flaws and therefore i will be the judge on and the jury on this like that's it's just not i think everybody knows that that's not a thing that we can do um i think like talking about like unconditional love um what brit ball said is really important i think because most of our experiences as human beings with love are, it involves some kind of condition, even when we don't want it to. Um, and I think that is rooted in like our, just like flaws and, and our, um, our journeys in trying to like get to a point where we can, we can have that kind of love without condition. Um, I remember like when my like older brother decided like he wasn't a sick, he was 18 and he was like, that's not, not my thing. I don't believe in that stuff. And I remember it becoming like a pretty large conversation in the like extended family as it does. <laughs> and and something that he said to me, which I have thought about every day since is like, 
it's hard for me to know that, um, like Sikhi says, love with a capital L is unconditional. Like Sikhi says this, or the Guru Granth Sahib says this, that like, we have to have an understanding of love that, that is beyond kind of those, those judgments. Um, and I'm watching people that I thought loved me change their mind. Um, and it might seem like a silly thing now because it's like, you know, it's a decision he made and he's a, a person with choices. <laughs> That's his life. Um, but it took a long time for like certain members of my extended family to get to that point of unconditional love. And I think it's not that we don't have to have expectations of people, but it's that we have that same compassion that we've been talking about throughout this conversation of like um, understanding that it is a journey and it is like a hard thing to do. And that all of us are kind of like guilty of, of having um, of making judgments and saying like that person is not worthy of my love or my compassion. Um, understanding that and, and the time that it takes and that it's not going to be like an immediate thing that we can wake up and just do is helpful. Um, and I'm not saying like if you're the person on the receiving end of the conditional love that like it's your responsibility to like be compassionate because that itself is a journey. Um, but we're all doing that in different manifestations. We're all like putting conditions on things and and making judgments on people and understanding that that's like a collective journey that we all have to go through, I think helps. Um, and like, and bringing it back to like the Bonnie's that I mentioned earlier, like there's so much, um, mention of like remembrance and praise and identifying with Ikongar. And Inikor and I actually talked about this the other day because she said um somebody once asked her <laughs> if Ikongar is um like insecure or like arrogant. Like why would they need us to constantly be remembering and praising them? And we talked about this because in my like <laughs> in my studies of like South Asian Islam, we had talked about this hadith where God says I was a hidden treasure and I longed to be known. And that was their reason for creating. And I always was like, wow, God seems a little insecure. <laughs> and it's not that at all, right? Like it's the praising and the identification and the remembrance is not for Ikonkar. Ikonkar doesn't need us for that. It's for us to understand a little bit better what it means to love the ocean. It's for us to understand a little bit better how to conceive of the vastness, to zoom out and like see the bigger picture, which is hard because we are the tiniest little things in, in the scheme of it all. So yeah, so so that like move towards a less conditional love with the hopes of love with a capital L, even in our human relationships, to the extent that they, they can be, you know, lived out. I think that that happens when we when we do that and our heart is in it and our mind is in it too. There's like a distinction that's made often between the heart and the mind. And it's like the heart is emotional and it, it gets tugged in different directions. And maybe our heart is calling for connection and for feeling love. But we have to convince our minds too, because we get so distracted by other things and, and so distracted by those judgments and those binaries and the othering that we do because we're human beings in the world. So um, to sum up, I know that was really rambly, but we don't get to dictate who is worthy because everyone is worthy. And it's just a matter of, yes, logically understanding that in our brains, but then 
living it. And that's the hard part. And so that requires like vulnerability, like the Kujaji Bani shows us. It requires bravery, like Budin Singh talks about. And it requires compassion, um, like Guru Tegh Bahadur gives to himself and to us in Salok Mahalanova. And it, it, it requires grace, which we know is there. So, you know, let's see. I think we can do it. <laughs> I think that was a great summary of not only your point, but also, yeah, everything that we have been discussing. Um, and a really succinct way of like how we can put that into practice. Um, I would also like to remind everyone um, that they can uh, ask their questions in the Q&A panel. We will be, um, we will be answering uh, those questions now. Um, so I would, yeah, welcome everyone to do that. Um, please do send your name and your city along with that. Um, the first question that we can chat about, because some of these I also have like integrated into our conversation, so they have been addressed. Um, but I really like this question around unconditional love and boundaries. Um, so Amrit from Bradford, UK asks, unconditional love can be interpreted as love without boundaries, um, but that can also be harmful. What is the panel's take on love with boundaries? in relation to Sikhi. And I think Brit Singh did touch upon that a little bit about the conditions that um, perhaps we place on love. Um, so Brit Singh, I'll throw that question to you first. Yeah, so so when, I talk, so when we look at boundaries, um, what we're trying to say is that, um, again, it's trying to impose our own expectations of what we want from other people and our journeys are all separate. Now, Tafi made a really good point around actually, um, we should be able to love everybody. And we should be able to show compassion to everybody. And um, you know, um, and, and going straight back to the, the the image of the farmers who have been beaten and are feeding the people who are oppressing them, that just indicates that actually, um, you know, love does overcome um, hatred. Love does overcome oppression. Um, and and this is uh, and this is a, a powerful message. So I think we need to continue to show love. Um, sometimes it might be that if two people's um, journeys are maybe conflicting, then it might be that it's better that you separate your paths and have some distance because that might be um, self-love. Because we've talked about you've got to be able to look after yourself and have that self-love first. Now, if there is a conflict with something that is impacting on your own ability to love yourself and to accept yourself and, and to continue your own journey, then it's better to remove yourself from that situation so that you can have some self-compassion as well um, before you can then, um, you know, rather than getting affected by other people's journeys that are impacting on you. Uh, I don't know if that sort of, it's a difficult question, but I don't know if that answers some of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's um, thinking about the unconditional versus conditional and then boundaries, um, understanding um, the role that how boundaries are related to but different from conditional um, is an important um, distinction to make there. Uh, and I'll throw the same question to you, Justine, um, around, I can read it again, but yeah, understanding what role do boundaries play? Uh, in understandings and conceptions of love, which I think you did touch upon at the beginning a little bit when we were talking about um, showing love to individuals who are actively harming uh, communities or individuals. Yeah, I think it's important because 
yeah, I thought a lot, a lot about like, um, sort of the way that we talk about, um, like oppressed people and the sort of expectation that is put on them to, to offer grace. Um, and I think that that is like a, a common narrative, especially like I've seen it a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States of like being kind of like the graceful oppressed person um, or yeah, the compassionate oppressed person. And I do think that that's a dangerous sort of like um, extreme to ask for. Um, and that's why I said earlier, like it is not necessarily the responsibility of the person being oppressed or the person who is being harmed to to offer that because that's not a thing that we can ask of someone who's being actively harmed i I think that we all understand that that would be asking much too much (laughs) um but and and i think that also means that like when you are involved in certain movements um when you are involved in certain movements that actively like materially affect your life it is not um your primary responsibility to like offer that when when you're still actively being harmed i think that that boundary is really important and there might be days when you can engage in that way um days when you feel like you can be compassionate and there might be days when you don't and maybe you're maybe you have a day or weeks or months like we had in the united states after the murder of george floyd where your your love is a love that is fueled um Mm -hmm. by like rage and that's okay too, um, because yes, planting flowers on top of nails is beautiful and it is loving, but so is putting your body on the line for your your fellow people. So is um, defending each other in the face of like police brutality. Like all of those things can be true at the same time. The farmers are not only planting flowers and serving longer, they are fighting. Um, and I think sometimes we tend to be like, it's got to be one or the other. And I think we have to understand how even like day to day, our our like capacity to do those things fluctuates and that's okay. Um, and day to day, we might have a love that looks one way and, and another day we might have love that looks another way. And both of those things can exist at the same time. And in fact, they're necessary. Um, yeah, I don't know if that, hope that answers the question. I think so. Um, yeah, I think I think you pulled apart important points um, in understanding boundaries. Um, yeah, because of course there have their boundaries do have to exist. Love can't be uh, boundaryless, which is of course different from um, conditions that are placed upon it, perhaps in like a larger scale. Um, I know we have. Yeah, and my understanding of our conversation, I feel like we spent and focused a lot of time on divine love. Um, and we have, of course, yeah, used examples to engage with what this might look like uh, in the realm of human love. Um, but are those two um, are those two loves distinct? Are they similar? Um, I'll throw this question to Brit Balsing. Um, the question is human love and divine love. Is there a difference between the two? Um, uh, so my my perception is that divine love is greater than any human love. Uh, but the human love gives you uh, a lesson in how to 
try and achieve that divine love. Uh, because at the same time, we have all these other things, such as attachment, uh, which we shouldn't uh, try and avoid having too much of. So it's about trying to um, check with yourself um, your connection with the Almighty, but also that connection that you have with um, the people around you. Um, so they are, I think they're two different things. It's a stepping stone uh, towards being able to appreciate divine love. I've always thought if you can't give compassion and love, um, empathy to um, your your fellow people and other sort of beings around you, then how on earth are we able to achieve divine love? It's impossible. So it's almost so it's a stepping stone in that direction. Um, I think that, that, that's my perception anyway. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, that I think really plays well into the theme of journeys that we've been discussing. Um, I'll throw the same question to you, Justine, uh, around conceptions of divine love and human love and differences and spaces in which maybe they overlap. Um, I think like ideally what we're working towards is for them to not not be very different at all, but it's like really hard to do that in like, I don't know, a lifetime even. Um, I think like, I don't know. Yeah, like love, love with a capital L in our human relationships ideally would look like not scorekeeping. Ideally, it would look like thinking about um, your relationship with um, whoever it might be as like a, a I don't know, in terms of like us, instead of I'm doing this for you and you're doing this for me, or like, you know, what is the exchange of this relationship? Instead, it becomes like that kind of thing that you can't explain that is just like you do, you do because that's what you are called to do. Like you love because that's what you are called to do. And it's not a matter of like, okay, if I do this for them, then like they'll do this for me and that's good. That's like a, a thought process that happens. It's more like, I think Buddha Singh talks about this. Um, it's more like the kind of love that like a child has for their parent where like, um, and ideally like a spouse has for their spouse, but like, but like when, when you're a kid and you're like mom or dad walks in the door and you like run and hug them or you like hug their leg when they're leaving, there's like this just innate, um, thing that you are called to do because you are only motivated by love and i think that's like that's the understanding of love that we are all kind of striving towards um i think in reality in our like struggles as human beings it is hard to to get to that place with our human relationships and the thing about like the transcendent love with Ikongar is that like you can feel you can have that with people too um but good as good reminds us like those people don't go with you when you go and so there is a distinction that's made um but ideally like that distinction gets smaller and smaller as we come to a better understanding of what love with a capital l is um and like the love that we have with Ikonkar becomes about not just about like serving people in love and and like sort of surrendering to that love it also becomes about like through that praise and through that remembrance and through that identification um striving to become like the beloved 
and I think that that's like a pretty important um, thing that is not always true in our human relationships. Um, yeah. If that answers the question. It does. Everyone has been answering questions fabulously today. Um, yeah, I guess the thing I'd like to like pull apart there is those people uh, when you were when you referenced those people that don't go with you when you go. I know we spoke about this for the webinar, um, thinking about um, the role of individuals who um, aren't with us anymore um, and extending love to those uh, to those individuals. What does that look like? How can we, yeah, maybe we can think through this question together and like pull those who are not with us anymore, who've passed away. Um, how do we think of them? Uh, when we think about conceptions of love um, and I'm thinking about divine love here and how it's not always like tangible and the love with people who are no longer with us is also not tangible um, it's not really a question but just lean how do we yeah maybe think about love with those who are no longer with us yeah so I think about this a lot um I think a lot about sort of our ideas about human love and how it kind of like exists when we're alive. And then like when somebody goes, it's like, okay, they're gone. And that's, you know, that's it. Um, and we know that that's like not a thing that we believe in, in like practice and in, in our emotions. Like we think about the people who have left us all the time. Um, but uh, the like transcendence of human love i think we all experience when we like remember the people who have left us and we feel like a presence a presence that is not tangible tangible but that is um like emotional and that we can feel in a moment um and i don't know you know maybe not everybody feels this all the time but like it's definitely something that is like true for me in my experience of like pulling pulling people back into our like spheres in a way that is not tangible um through like remembering them and remembering the, the love that we still have for them and Igor always says love never dies and I think about that a lot um yeah I, I think Professor Bordenstein says this but not about like your friends or your family but he says like um the kinds of sort of inspirational um deeply like loving and compassionate people that we can think of, whether that's like one of the gurus or, or the guru um, or like Mary or Jesus or the prophet Muhammad, like all these people that are kind of sort of vastly loving and compassionate um, like figures. He says that when, when we're dealing with inspirational people like that, people that encompass that kind of vastness of love, we we like walk with them through the world. Um, and I love that a lot. Um, and he, he says like, they don't, they don't ever really like go anywhere because they're not just like people. There's this like love and emotion and connection that people have with them that is beyond the physical. And it means that you can connect with that at any time. And I think that that's true of like, relationships with people that we have lost physically who we who we still love very much. I know that like I grew up 
in a house where after my mom's mom passed away, my mom was still talking up a storm to her um, aloud sometimes in the kitchen on walks. Like she still does. She talks to her all the time. And I think maybe that sounds a little bit kooky. Um, no, <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, judgment about that. But you know, my, my mom always raised us to understand that like human love too can be, can be beyond kind of understanding and beyond logic and we can pull the people we love back into our into our physical like worlds by just remembering how powerful that like love is and love was um and i think that that can be true and also it can be true that like what guru teg bahadur says about like your like familial and like friendship sort of relationships things like that 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 those things don't go with you when you go um, not in the same way, at least, right? Um, and so, and that's more, I think, a statement about like any kind of understanding that any of these things are yours, you know, instead of like understanding that they're all rooted in this origin, and that origin is like what it is to to um, that origin, it like encompasses love in the sort of purest sense, in the largest sense. Um, but those relationships are not ours in a way where they're like our possessions that we lose or we keep. And I know mm -hmm. that's hard to, to remember when you lose someone, cause it is hard no matter what, it's always hard. But um, yeah, I think that like understanding the way that love transcends time and physical space is a thing that can bring a lot of comfort. Um, and it's definitely brought me a lot of comfort. Thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of so a lot of the questions that we're getting in the chat, I think um, my understanding were addressed by us, but perhaps we can address them head on. I think it's uh, questions around loving people who are doing harm. Um, how do we do that? What does that look like? Um, are we allowed to stop interacting with these people when they're not perhaps like political entities or political people? Um, how what does that relationship look like? Um, is it, how do we engage in those relationships in loving ways? When do we draw those boundaries um, of stopping those interactions? Um, yeah, so quick blessing, I'll throw the question to you. Um, in our day-to-day -day lives, what does it look like um, to engage with people who are actively harming us or those around us? Um, how do we approach them in loving ways and what are the boundaries um, of that love that we can extend. Uh, of course, life can be very challenging. And um, one of the things we've got to think about, uh, we talked about earlier really, was around um, self-love and self-compassion. Um, so you have to make sure that you're in a good place, in a safe place, um, and that your your needs are fulfilled first. Because if they're not, then you're not going to be in a position to be able to love other people and show them compassion. Um, so I think you know it's it's very difficult to generalise with um, with this sort of a question, but I think generally I think you've got to think about your what your needs are. Um, are they being met? Are you able to um, then show that compassion and love to other people? Um, if you can't, then you need to remove yourself from that situation. Um, 
Um, and in order to get yourself into a place where you can focus more on your needs um, and to be able to focus on that self-love, only once you've got to that place are you then able to then um, maybe um, show compassion to others and show love to others um, and maybe um, you know help other people. So um, it's, it's a difficult one to give a general answer to, but sort of, we sort of touched upon it earlier as well. I think I'm just going to go back to that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It is um, a large, all-encompassing question that's difficult to answer. Um, but I think we have been, like, both panelists have been uh, engaging with ways to answer that. And it makes me think of what Justine was speaking about before um, around hook'em and action um, and what love looks like, um, what it what it looks like, how it's enacted um, in spaces or with people um, who are actively harming. Um, so maybe just lean, you'd like to touch upon that a little bit or answer the question in the, the way that you would like to answer it. Um, if you want me to unmute you, I can. Yeah. Uh, could you remind me what the question was? Cause I lost it a little yeah. bit. No, that's okay. There's just a couple of questions. I think um, particularly asking about, how do we show love to people who are harming us or others? And I think it was, I think it has been touched upon, but perhaps we could like engage with it head on. Um, how do we, yeah, show love to people who uh, have harmed us, have harmed others, have, they do have uh, perhaps engaged in harmful behaviors. Uh, where do we draw that line of perhaps where, how we extend our love? Um, but I think, yeah, it would be important to highlight like the different ways in which love is enacted. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I think like, so we touched on, on like loving people who maybe aren't necessarily like connected to us in like relationships um, where it's like looking at larger sort of social context and political context. I think. I saw some questions that asked about like family members or people that you're like close with. And I, I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves. I, it doesn't mean like, I don't know, people say the phrase like tough love all the time. And I think that that's an important thing. And I think it's a cliche for a reason. Like, um, I think that love doesn't always look like immediately forgiving someone or doing something that is harmful either to themselves or to other people. Um, It means like being compassionate about maybe where they're coming from and compassionate about like, let's say I saw a question that that was like about like alcoholism or something like that, being compassionate about that addiction and what, what that means. Um, And, and then understanding that maybe sometimes in order to like look out for a person's like health and well-being that means doing things that maybe are more classified under the umbrella of tough love um i know that like in in my family like that's had to that's been a, a thing that is a topic of discussion many times in the past um of like how to respond to people you love who who are like putting themselves in harm's way or putting others in harm's way. It's difficult, but sometimes that means like telling them the truth 
and doing the tough love thing. And maybe they interpret that one way, but knowing that like, that was a good decision. Like tough love doesn't always mean that like the person who you're giving it to is going to be like, I see where you're coming from. And I appreciate this. I know this means you love me. Maybe they come to that realization a long time later. That certainly happened for us. But like, um, I think love can look like, especially when it comes to like questions of harm and, um, and like concern that you have for the people you love. Concern that you have for the people you love can sometimes look like tough love. Love can sometimes look like things that don't, don't feel immediately compassionate, but are rooted in compassion and like wanting to protect someone and wanting to like see them stick around. Uh, you know, like these are all important things that you have to kind of weigh and like every context is different. But in my experience, um, tough love is like sometimes the way to go. But that also means that like when you're giving tough love, you you also communicate that like the love that you have for that person is not conditional. Like there, you have to like do all these kind of things and like juggle them in a way. I don't think I have like an, a general answer to that because it really depends on like who and what you are dealing with. Um, but like, yeah, I think the compassion lies in understanding the causes or understanding what might be, what that behavior might be rooted in and addressing that. Um, yeah. Can I just add to that as well? I'm going to touch on a Christian analogy that I learned when I was at school because I think it, it's quite relevant here. Um, but um, for example, there was in a village there was a sheep thief, um, and in order for people to know that uh, he was beef, he was um, stealing people's beef, uh, sheep, um, they put an ST and burnt it on his forehead so everybody knew he was a sheep. Um, many years later, because he became such a good person, um, he then was known by the young people as a saint. So um, the thing is that although we talk about people being um, harmful, there are times actually where time changes either people or circumstance um, or situations. So, um, so that person that might be harmful at a particular time may not forever be harmful as well so we have to bear that in mind that as we um you know our journeys are all very different um at different stages of our lives mm -hmm. yeah thank you for for adding that i think that's an important um important uh addition around journeys um and yeah varying ways in which our love shows up through those journeys um love from the other person um yeah i think it's just it's quite complex and like different depending on circumstances and situations, um, but helpful to engage with it um, through this conversation. I know we are, we have about five minutes left, so I will ask, yeah, the panelists if there's anything they would like to add. Um, yeah, I'll invite panelists to, uh, for closing statements and we can start with, or anything, yeah, that you'd like to add that perhaps is missed. Um, we can start with just lean core. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I, I would just like reiterate the things that we've talked about because a lot of times we only think about love in terms of like romantic relationships. And like, I know Valentine's Day is tomorrow, <laughs> but, but like the love that we're talking about is a love that is not, does not have like a day designated to it. It's like your, it's your whole life. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think like understanding 
that love in Zikki is very much about like being rooted in grace and identifying with Ekongar in all of your actions and in the things that you say and the ways that you react to things. And then when when you're not able to do that, being compassionate with yourself and with others. Um, and understanding how to love and take care of the drop. Um, mm -hmm. I think the thing we can all work on. Keep it short. That's all I got. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, Fred Singh, I'll throw it to you for any closing statements. Um, so from my point of view, it um, make sure you uh, look after yourself first, show yourself some love, make sure that you are okay um, before you start sharing that love. Um, in Sikhi, we're quite lucky because the gurus have given us um, the, the pillars of Nam Jatna, Vandakishakna, Kidgadni. Um, and if we uphold these ideals, um, you know, we are sharing our love with um, the people around us um, and the beings around us. Um, and, and that's a, a wonderful starting point. So um, we don't need one day to show our love. Every day we should be showing our love to one another. But, um, thank you for having me on today. Of course. Yeah, thank you to the both of you for joining me and all of the other um, attendees today. I'm Kathy Sikri. I thank all of our wonderful, both of our wonderful presenters um, for today's insightful conversation. I'll definitely be uh, referring back to our conversation um, frequently, I think. Uh, as always, a recording of this webinar will be available within 24 hours. It'll just be sent to the email with which you registered uh, for this webinar with. Just to wrap up today's conversation, I'd like to remind everyone that we host monthly live webinars. Our next webinar will be on March 6th, titled Collecting History, Narratives That Shape Our Futures, where we will be joined by Geeta Anjali Singh, Inigor, and Shana Singh Baldwin in conversation about what role women have historically occupied in our collective psyche, reflecting on our past, present, and thinking about the future. How do we put mechanisms into place to ensure women's stories are not forgotten? And lastly, don't forget to tune into The Sick Cast, a podcast produced by Sikri, where we explore the various issues and events affecting Sikhs worldwide. Thank you again for joining in. Today's webinar will be ending now. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.